It is different today to, uh, to be able to do this together, and hopefully you will sense a unity with one another that comes from worshiping together at the same time and being able to hear God's word together. And so as we continue to, to grow in this ourselves and work through this, we hope that that what you'll experience this morning is encouragement in God's word, um, just encouragement in being able to worship together. And then also through this, that it would be a time for you to be able to stop along with your families. If there are things that you want to discuss, we would encourage you to go ahead and do that as well, to either pause the live stream and, and pick it right back up or to, to take some time and to um, discuss or pray at different points. This morning, you'll find your notes are actually attached there on the website. If you're on the website, you can go to the website and go to the tab there under live streaming that has those notes, and you're welcome to pull those off. After the service, we'll be posting some discussion questions for you later in the day and for you to be able to continue to think on this. But this morning is just kind of a, a different week, and the truth is, is that Today is unique because it's Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday celebrates Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, which simply says this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Jesus had ridden into the city of Jerusalem, as Zechariah had prophesied early, on a colt, on a donkey. And as he comes down the Mount of Olives, we're told that there were those that were with him that laid out palm branches across the ground in front of him. And it says here in Luke 19, verse 38, it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so they were shouting this Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest as he was coming forward, their promised king. And they were rejoicing about this promised king. The truth is, is that Palm Sunday reminds us that Jesus came to save us not from an earthly enemy, but rather from the greatest enemy that we had, which was sin and the power of sin over our lives. And Jesus came to grant us victory, to give us victory through the cross. But it was amazing. This triumphal procession, this triumphal journey that Jesus takes as he enters into the, the city of Jerusalem would come to an abrupt end. It wasn't going to last forever in an earthly sense. And a season of joy in which Jesus experienced those that were glorifying him turned into a season of stress <coughs> and of sorrow. See, interestingly, we can probably understand this better today than we were just able a few weeks ago. In our current time of shelter-in-place orders, it's easy to see how quickly things can change, how little control we have over anything. 
For some, it's meant a reduction of work hours, loss of your job, or extra work as you attempt to adjust to a viral work environment. For some, it's making difficult decisions on how to keep or let go employees. For others, it's finding new ways to earn income, and still others, learning to school your children from home or having parents as your teachers. And sometimes having your teachers teach you from a distance. For others, it can be a challenge just being home altogether all day, both in finding out what to do, finding out how to get along, and how do you spend the entirety of a day in a productive way. And yet, we serve a God who still is sovereign, a God who's still working for our good, and a God who desires His will to be fulfilled in the best of times and in the worst of times. So this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus persevered in carrying out the will of God as He faced the magnitude of His impending persecution. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 22. We're going to be reading from verses 39 through 53. And as we do that, I want you to continue to look in that text as we read this together for the contrast between the way that Jesus responds and the way that the disciples respond. And this is what it says, starting in Luke 22. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I encourage you that if you have your Bibles with you to read along. And this is what it says. It says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. For some of you, you're familiar with the story of Jesus in the garden being arrested by the Jewish leaders, by the temple officials. In fact, the Gospel of Mark 
tells the story a little bit differently. It is in alignment with Luke, but it emphasizes some different areas, and so does Matthew. And yet, in this particular passage, what we see is Christ being strengthened through prayer. You see, prayer enlists God's strength to fulfill His will and prevent us from becoming overcome by the power of evil. Prayer enlists God's strength to fulfill His will and prevent us from being overcome by the power of evil. It enlists God's strength. And if you have notes, I would encourage you, after you write in that word strength, I want you to circle that. Prayer is an acknowledgement that we need God's strength. It's a calling upon God for His strength to fulfill His will. And so verse 39 picks up immediately after the disciples and Christ leave the upper room. And we're told that Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Now, immediately we're reminded again of this triumphal entry that Christ had taken, where he had been up on the Mount of Olivet. It tells us in Luke 21, verse 37, that every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the Mount called Olivet. So first we're drawn to the idea that Jesus, the same king, that had been hailed king coming down into Jerusalem is now going to be arrested. But we're also told that this same king went to the Mount of Olivet every single night while he was in Jerusalem for that week. We're told that he lodged there. Now this is important because Jesus comes there knowing that he's an easy target, that he's easily found. See, Jesus knows what's coming, and yet he doesn't run away. He faithfully walked with God even as he desired a different method to bring about the desired outcome. How many times when we're We don't like what God's doing in our life. Do we just stop being obedient to God to wait to hear a more clear direction? See, Jesus actually is saying, I'm going through with this. I'm continuing to move forward, but I'm going to come before you, Lord, because I need your strength, and I'm going to actually ask you for something different. And so what does he do? He tells the disciples in verse 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He immediately instructs the disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. At this point, Jesus then withdrew from them a stone's throw, it tells us, and knelt down and prayed. Jesus' first response when he's confronted with the, the... the impending persecution, the impending arrest that's going to occur is not to run the other direction, not to find a way out, but it is to commune with God, His Father. You see, prayer isn't just petitioning God. It's communing with Him and worshiping Him. And He turns to the Father for strength. 
He turns to the Father for strength. Now, for some of us, we can get that. We, when we're little, mom is often nurturer and dad is often protector. More often than not, little children run to their mom to put a Band-Aid on, and more often than not, dad's looking at it going, that's not Band-Aid worthy. But both serve a wonderful purpose. And Jesus, in this moment, goes running into the Father's arms. Jesus turns to God and he communes with the Father. And the one that he wants to be with is his Father. And Jesus calls on his Father and he asks for this cup to be removed. But then says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. He puts the petition before God, but he leaves it with not my will, but yours. See, fulfilling the will of God was put over his own personal comfort and truthfully his life. Fulfilling the will of God was put over his own personal comfort and his life. Jesus wanted to fulfill God's will more than he wanted the security of this life. Notice what happens in verse 43. It says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. You ever prayed to God in a moment where you were uncertain? Where you were fearful? Where you weren't sure what was happening next? You ever pray to God in that moment and you're still in distress and yet there is a comfort that overcomes you as you talk to God? That's the immediacy of his strengthening. His Holy Spirit strengthens us. And the truth is, He has angels that minister to us. And this passage actually affirms what we learn in Hebrews 1, that just for a moment of time, that Jesus humbled Himself even below the angels. He stepped down out of heaven, took on humanity for our sake. And so what we see here is Jesus' life modeling a prayer which strengthens us to fulfill his will. So prayer which strengthens us to fulfill God's will begins with humility. It begins with humility. See, Jesus begins by saying, here's my petition, Lord, but not my will, your will be done. I think a lot of times we become not strengthened in Christ, but we become discouraged because we pray for our will to be done rather than God's. We can often think about prayer in context to what God is providing for us, not providing in us. 
Think about it for a moment. When you go to prayer, what's the primary focus of your prayer? Is the primary focus of your prayer that God would change something, do something, or bring something to you? Or is the focus on being strengthened so that you might fulfill the will that he has for you? Jesus approached the Father, coming to him, saying, this isn't about me and what I want. This is about what you and you desire. But God, I sure would like there to be a different way. Father, I would sure love for you to do this a different way. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at a proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Prayer which strengthens begins with humility. It acknowledges that God is all-powerful. It acknowledges that God is the sovereign King. Now notice this. Jesus asked for this cup to be removed. So what is he asking that it would be removed? Well, throughout the Old Testament, the cup is a symbol of God's judgment. And what he's actually saying is, God, I don't want to bear the weight of your judgment. If there's another way, please do it. But if this is the only way, your way, I'm in. See, Jesus was going to experience God's judgment for man's sin in full. Psalm 85, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup foaming with wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 17 adds, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. This cup that Jesus is taking is the full wrath of God intended for those who are sinners. Intended for each one of us because of our rebellion against God. Because Jesus himself, the only way that forgiveness of sin could occur is through a perfect sacrifice. Jesus himself being that sacrifice, bearing the weight of our sin, going to the cross of it, bearing it there, and granting life to all those who repent and believe. It's interesting, isn't it, that sin enters the world because Satan lies to a man. And this man desires to be like God, desires to know the things of God, the, the difference between good and evil, and chooses to disobey. Sin enters the world because a man says, not your will, God, but my will. 
Jesus overcomes the power of sin by saying, not my will, but your will be done. That's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that the first sinless man, Adam, being created by God, chooses to satisfy his own will. Well, Christ, the second sinless man, battled sin, battled self, battled Satan, and battled temptation. And won by saying, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. The second thing that we see is that strengthening prayer is fervent and unceasing. It's fervent and unceasing, even amidst trials. Verse 43 through 46 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There is a rare physical phenomenon known as hematridosis. And it's a case in where under great emotional stress, the tiny blood vessels rupture in the sweat glands and produce a mixture of blood and sweat. The truth here is this, that Jesus, when he saw the cup, the agony began to get worse. He understood it, but as he continued to consider the cup of wrath, his agony was so overwhelming, the emotional stress so great, that he sweat that which was like drops of blood. His sweat was tainted with these broken capillaries. Jesus faces this cup. The picture of agony that we have here is actually the most severe picture we have of Jesus, even in comparison to the cross. The anticipation of what was to come was even greater than what was to come and the agony that it produced. Now, for many of us, it's easy to think about agony and think about how we would respond, but I want to encourage you to take a moment. If you want to discuss here, this would be a great part to stop and ask yourself, how do you respond when you experience suffering or agony? Do you draw near to God? Or do you draw away from him? Jesus was strengthened in his agony by drawing near to God, by praying more earnestly. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 tells us to do something. We're told to rejoice always in 16, but then in 17... Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Jesus prays more fervently in his agony and despair. 
Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, I'm never afraid of exaggeration when I speak of what my Lord endured. All hell was distilled into that cup of which our God and Savior Jesus Christ was made to drink. Jesus bore a weight and a penalty that was ours. The full wrath. And he continues to go to the well, his father. I don't know about you guys, but for me, that's hard. When we suffer and somebody's taking us through it, the last thing we want to do is go to them. And yet, because God is sovereign over all, because he's demonstrated his love through the work of the cross, we can continue to go to him knowing that he's working it out for his good and for his purpose. Now, what's interesting here is that the disciples respond differently. It says, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Now, what's interesting about this passage is is that disciples often are are criticized in, in the garden. And we think of it as if they didn't go along and necessarily pray with the other, with Jesus or with one another, but rather that they just saw it as this kind of lackadaisical thing to do. Well, the truth is the disciples were in sorrow. They had heard what was coming. They didn't fully yet understand it all, but they had heard what was coming. Some of them, like Peter, had been told that he would deny Jesus three times, and the rest of them had been told that they would abandon him. And now they're sensing this moment drawing near. And Jesus is telling them and has told them that there is going to be the time is at hand. And they themselves are in sorrow. And rather than getting up, they sleep. I think for many of us, we can at times relate to the disciples. This day stinks, I'm just going to sleep. Hopefully, it's better tomorrow. We take the things which are true, that each day has new mercies. That's true. But too often, we find ourselves numbing out to sorrow, to despair, to discouragement, to stress. And we hide ourselves under the covers as if nothing can harm us. It's like the moose hiding behind a tree. If he can't see us, then obviously we can't see him, which we know is false. And the truth is, is that in our sorrow, God has called us to come to him to be strengthened. And in fact, he says to the disciples again, he says, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You see, when we're in sorrow, when we're in suffering, when we're in despair, when we're experiencing discouragement, we are more prone to temptation. We are more prone to the, 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 
the attacks and the desires of the enemy. We're told in, in Peter, in 1 Peter, that we have a, an enemy that prowls around looking to do what? To devour us. So we're told to be on guard, to be watchful. When we're in those places of despair or sorrow or agony or suffering, do you find yourself checking out? Well, if you do, you're in good company, the disciples. But the truth is, is we're not in the best company, which is Jesus. Our strength needs to come from Jesus. Our strength needs to be found in Jesus. A Savior who understands. A Savior who has experienced suffering and yet persevered. In Hebrews 5, we're told this about Jesus. In verses 7 and 8, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That Jesus himself was still relying on the Spirit to give him strength. to allow him to fulfill the will of God. I want to encourage you this morning to honestly ask that question. Are you going numb? Are you checking out? Are you looking to figure out something else in some other way in your own strength? Or are you going to the source of strength is God through prayer. Are you moving to a place where despondency or sorrow rules and it creates apathy rather than confidence in Christ? I want to encourage you to put your confidence in Christ. Susanna Wesley was the mother of John Wesley and Charles Wesley. For some, you might know who John Wesley is. John Wesley was the founder of Methodism. Charles Wesley, many of the, the great hymns that we sing from the past were written by him. Susanna Wesley went through many things. She was the youngest of 25 children. Her father died at a young age. For her, he was an older man, but for her, she was young. She then married a Puritan preacher who was a hard man. Between the two of them, they had 19 children, nine of which, which never made it to the age of about 10. During that time, her husband had mismanaged money and actually was sent to a, a debtor's prison. 
and he died. So she went to prison for him to pay the debt. Now, for many of us, we haven't been in that situation. But we can honestly say that that would be a frustrating and overwhelming time. I have ten children to feed. Ten children to take care of. Nine of my children have died. Of a husband who was a, a Puritan preacher turned criminal. And I'm not sure even where to go. Susanna Wesley didn't stop there. Susanna Wesley was a woman of faith. And when she had nothing else, she continued to seek the Lord for her children, for her family, and for his will. Susanna Wesley was known to pray one hour every day for each of her children. In those moments, what we're told is that Susanna Wesley, that there was a strengthening to her. She remained faithful to Christ. Her children bore the marks of her faithfulness. You see, it would be easy when we face situations that are uncomfortable and out of the norm and they, they kind of rock our world to, to pull away from Christ. It'd be normal for us to kind of just hibernate. It would have been normal for Susanna Wesley to just sit in her cell and say, it's all lost, nothing can happen, it's no good. Or we can turn to Christ in total and utter dependence and seek Him knowing that He is all-powerful, that He is a Father who loves us, who seeks our good, as we seek him. Well, the disciples were warned, rise and pray that you may not enter in temptation. That word parismen, which is in Greek, literally means to not to succumb to evil power. What Jesus was saying was be strengthened in prayer so that you don't succumb to the power of of evil. What he was telling the disciples to do in that moment was to continue to do this even unceasingly. He told them to rise, to no longer be on their knees before God, but to rise up because he knew what was coming. And the beauty of that is he was telling them that even then they could continue to pray. Even then. The third thing that we see here as a result of strengthening prayer is that it produces confidence in God's unique plans. When we seek the Lord amidst our suffering or sorrow, our, our, our agony, guess what? It produces confidence in His unique plans. Jesus had prayed, God, if you're willing, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Well, He knew right away When in verse 47, we're told, while he was speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. 
he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus had an opportunity in this moment to run away, but he chooses to engage the will of God, to stay in it, to be submitted to it. He had asked, and the Father's answer was different than his. Now, I don't know about you guys, but there have been times in my life where when God's answer is different than mine, I'm not too happy about it. In fact, I'm quite ticked off, right? Like, Lord, you owed me this. Like, come on. Like, really? That's always a really good word that comes out of my mouth, like, is that I know when something's not good, and I know that my heart is not right when I sit there and I kind of look at God and go, really? As if I deserve something better. The truth is, is that Jesus stays. Why? Because he's confident of his will. When we are faithfully seeking the face of God through prayer, we can be confident of his will. See, when we're not talking to God about the desires of our hearts and seeking his will, when things happen to us, we kind of just let them happen to us. And we're totally confused. Is this the will of God or not the will of God? Am I supposed to even be here? But when God starts opening doors... He starts prompting our hearts and he's affirming the prayer or he's not affirming the prayer. In this moment, Jesus knows that this is the Father's will as it was always. It was a son saying to his father, gee, I really hope and really desire that I don't have to go through this, but I will. Now, when that time comes, Judas comes to Jesus, and we're told here that Judas comes and kisses or attempts to kiss Jesus on the cheek. Now, what's unique about this is that Jesus looks at Judas, and because he's confident in God's will, he's able to look at Judas and say, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, these were words like a dagger, but they were loving. You see, the kiss was a sign of affection. This word in Greek, kiss, is actually the Greek word phileo. It was a love. A brotherly love is what it was supposed to communicate. And Jesus says to Judas, really? This is how you love a brother? Jesus is able to love Judas in that moment and be loving to Judas by calling out and speaking to the fact that Judas was not being loving. Judas' life had really just been nothing but a facade. It had been one who was playing a game, who wanted to look the part but not be the part. We 
God desires our heart. And because he desires our heart, God exposes the pretending in our life. In that moment, Judas had an opportunity to repent, and he doesn't. But Jesus is able to stand firm knowing that this is the will of his Father. Prayer which strengthens also leads to the demonstration of loving grace towards others, including our enemies. Prayer which strengthens also leads to the demonstration of loving grace towards others, including our enemies. Now notice how one of the disciples responds. We're told in John that this disciple was actually Peter. Peter continues to kind of flub things up a little bit, if you think about this for a moment. Peter had to swing his sword. We're told that his ear was cut off, right? We're told that that ear is taken. It says one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. The only way for him really to cut off the right ear would have been to be from behind him. So Peter actually probably is looking to lop this guy's head off and captures the ear instead of the head. Peter's just fighting. And what's interesting about this is that Jesus' response is not, hey, thanks. Jesus' response is no more of this. Stop. What's happening in this moment is, is that Peter, who is not prepared, who's been sleeping, is faced, and he's faced only with human response. The human need to simply defend rather than seeing this as part of the will of God being fulfilled that he's been told about would come. And so Jesus takes the servant and he touches his ear and he heals his ear. What a unique thing. The one who has just looked to, to kill Jesus, that wants to take him captive. Now Jesus is the one that's mending him and putting him back together. You see, prayer actually allows us in Christ to love people well. In the power of the Father, we continue to love well. And Jesus turns and sees the blindness of this man. He has compassion on him, but then he sees the spiritual blindness because he's at enmity with God. He sees him as someone in need of healing in the same way that he saw each one of us in need of healing from sin. In 2 Corinthians, Jesus says this. 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 3, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
We destroy arguments and every lofter opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your, dis- when your obedience is complete. Our methods are not the same as the world's. And the truth is, we are going to face those that oppose us because they oppose Christ. When we're not in communion with God, we are going to have a difficult time of loving people well, especially those who seem to come against us. I want you to honestly ask yourself, who's God putting in front of you, asking you to love, and you're fighting it? Who's God asking you to love well, where you're just looking to fight with a sword rather than the strength of the Father. You see, this is where we see God desiring through prayer not to simply provide us with something, to be a genie in a bottle in essence, but to be the true transformer of our life. Where as we seek him, he actually transforms us and renews us and restores us. Finally, notice what Jesus does here. It says in verse 52 through 53, it says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. You see, Jesus actually addresses the nature of the present darkness. Because he is strengthened in prayer, he addresses the nature of the present darkness, both the fallenness of those who are in his presence, where he points out that they could have simply captured him in daylight, but because they knew that what they weren't doing was right, they chose to do it in the darkness. They chose to not do it in public because they were fearful, knowing that the public would rebel against them. The other part of that is is that Jesus points out that this is not a darkness that lasts forever, but rather that this darkness is for an hour. It's for a period of time, it's temporary. The fallenness of this world and its consequences, famine, fire, coronavirus, all the things that we face in a fallen world because sin has entered the world, not because sin causes them or that there's some punishment, but it is because we are fallen and because creation is fallen, things are corrupted. And that corruption, actually, Scripture tells us in Romans 8, is temporary. And that we groan for the day of Christ's return. You see, when we're strengthened in prayer, we're reminded that the things that we wrestle with in this life will pass if you have repented and believed on Christ for your salvation. They will be redeemed 
we will stand restored, glorified with Christ, and creation will be new and renewed. Prayer is an opportunity for God to continue to hold us, continue to allow us to depend on him, and continue to show us that his word is true. And so, as we look at this, as we consider this passage, my hope is that we would be a people of prayer. Not prayer simply for those things that we desire or want. That we would be a people of prayer who are praying for the strength of God to fulfill His will through our lives. And so may that be our prayer this Palm Sunday. That we be a people who are a praying people. A people who are praying, not my will, but your will be done. And may we be found to be a people who are yielding to God's perfect will, just like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your loving word. Thank you that you haven't left us alone. And thank you that your strength has been granted as we seek you. May we be a people who approach prayer with humility, fervently, and unceasingly. And God, may we testify to the truth that you are giving us confidence in your will. That you're growing us in love for others, even our enemies, and giving us the strength to demonstrate this love even to our enemies. And Father, may we be a people who are mindful that the fallenness of this world is not eternal, but it is temporary for all who have repented and believed on you for their salvation. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.